0: How do you know if you are saved? I want you to think about that for a second. If somebody were to ask you that question, how do you know if you're saved, if you're going to make it? How would you answer? Is there life after death? If so, how do we get there? These are questions that humanity has been wrestling with for millennia. The answers to which... Are fundamental to the Christian faith and these questions and their answers were fundamental to my training as a Lutheran pastor as well I remember my first year at the seminary one of the first classes I took was Lutheran mind with dr. Kent Burrison you can see him there with the bow tie in this picture in this class uh, we talked about these questions of life and death and eternal life and heaven and how to get there and uh, to illustrate a point he shared a story he said, Imagine you have a woman. She was baptized and confirmed Lutheran. She married a nice Lutheran man. They had great kids. They had a few of them, and they raised them in the church. They went to church every Sunday. They shared God's word in their home. They prayed together. This woman served in her church on various commissions and boards and things and, and served her community well in a, in a humble spirit. This woman grew older, and uh, her health started to fail. And so her mind started to go a little bit as well, and this woman who was once known as very kind and generous became kind of mean, sometimes manipulative, and mean-spirited. People wonder what happened to her. This woman died, and you were asked to preach at her funeral. So what do you share with the people gathered at her funeral about this woman's eternal salvation? And we, you know, really smart first-year seminaries, we, we, we know the answers to these questions, right? So we broke up into small groups. Dr. Burson had us uh, talk it over, and then he asked for our answers, and we gave our answers, and, you know, they varied. It was all over the place, you know, from God is very gracious and loving. Of course he's going to accept this woman, to um, no, she ain't going to make it because she isn't bearing the fruit of repentance, right? She's not bearing the fruit of faith. And then, Dr. Burson, he took some more answers, and and then after we were done talking about that, uh, he said, that woman was my mother. (laughs) Oh! You could just hear a pin drop in that classroom, right? (laughs) Oh, we were deciding the eternal destination of his mom. Ugh! How do you know if you're saved? How do you know if you're going to make it? That's the question. This is where the rubber hits the road in life and theology. This is a really important question. I think it's important for two reasons. Number one, there's a lot of bad theology out there, even among first-year Lutheran seminarians. And perhaps even amongst us here, bad theology that says you're saved if you pray a certain prayer, or if you commit your life to Christ, or you're saved if you went through confirmation class. Oh, I was baptized and confirmed. Or you're saved if you've been a pretty decent person in your life. Now that's going to make, that get you to heaven. Second reason this is an important question to answer is your spiritual life won't take off until you know exactly where you stand with God. See, everything you do as a disciple of Jesus is contingent upon the confidence that you have as a child of God, knowing who you are in his eyes. And guess what? God loves you, and he wants you to know that. He doesn't want you questioning it or doubting it. A good father doesn't want his kids uh, wondering if, if, if he's committed to them or loves them. Uh, for example, I don't tell my kids when I go on a trip, um, hey, daddy's going to be back soon. Or maybe he's not. Or maybe he's not really your daddy at all. Maybe, maybe my real family is somewhere else. Maybe I'll bring a present back uh, for you from my trip. Or maybe not. Maybe I won't come back at all. And now you think about those things and let that compel you to be a better child. No, that's ridiculous, right? We don't say that stuff to our kids. No, that's not going to produce love and loyalty in our children. And if I, as an earthly father, don't want my kids thinking they're orphans, how much more so our Heavenly Father, who is the best father, would want his kids to feel like orphans. All right? so our text uh, picks up here with jesus going down from galilee to the jordan river to be baptized by john and of course this uh at first glance makes us scratch our head like why would jesus need to get baptized isn't this baptism a baptism of repentance a baptism for sinners and here we have the holy righteous true innocent sinless son of god coming to be baptized what's going on here And John the Baptist, too, is a little confused by this. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me to be baptized? This doesn't make any sense. And then we get the first recorded words in the Gospel of Matthew from Jesus. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus being baptized by John in this river is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Okay, what does this mean? Well, to unpack this, we've got to kind of look at uh, the word righteousness. And in the Greek, it's dikaiosune. And in my Greek lexicon, there's like two whole pages of definitions for this word. It's just like a robust word in the Greek. Um, but I kind of boiled it down for us a little bit here. In the broad sense, it's the state of him who is such as he ought to be. Or one could say the condition acceptable to God. To be righteous is to be in this condition acceptable to God. And in this context, you can kind of look through the lexicon and see Bible passages where this word is used. And they will tell you what it means in the context. So in this context, my lexicon said to perform completely whatever is right. And so... Jesus had this revelation from the Father, of course, as Brenda was talking about in the children's message, that this is fitting to fulfill all righteousness, to be baptized in this river. So Jesus was doing God's will. This was part of his mission to save the world from sin. So as Jesus enters into these waters and is baptized by John, he's assuming the identity of a sinner. He's taking on all sin beginning here at his baptism and of course that wouldn't be completed until his death and if you recall later on in the gospel of Matthew uh, Jesus talks about are you willing to be baptized with the baptism that I am about to undergo so here's the beginning of that baptism uh, taking on the sin of the world that's what Jesus is doing here in the river Jordan St. Paul puts it beautifully like this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Another way to talk about righteousness is is being made right uh, with God, being put in a right relationship to God. And that's what Jesus does for for us in his life, in his baptism, life, death, and resurrection. The... Some symbolism here, and the connection to the Old Testament is beautiful. I love to point it out. So if you remember, God called His people, Israel, out of Egyptian captivity, and made them his children, made them a son, uh, Israel God referred to Israel as his son. And he took him to Mount Sinai and made a covenant with them uh, through His law, and through the sacrifice of animals. Uh, this covenant was made. Uh, to atone for these people's sins and to gather them into God's family. And then God led them to the promised land, and something miraculous happened uh, again here at the Jordan River. As the Ark of the Covenant came into the Jordan River, it parted, and the Israelites walked through on dry ground into the promised land. In a similar way, Jesus also was called up out of Egypt, if you remember how the story goes. He goes down to Galilee, to the Jordan River, the same river that God's people of old passed through. And in this time in the river, uh, God leads people to the promised land through his son. And all who follow him, all who believe and trust in him, have salvation, the promised land of eternity. And then, as Jesus comes up out of the water... Something miraculous happens, just like it did there at the Jordan River long ago. The heavens are torn apart. Not just the river, but the heavens are torn apart, and two worlds collide. And the Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove and remains on Jesus. And here, in this instance, the world that is, and the world that is to come, come together. Jesus becomes this portal of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus um, would also need to, to rest secure here in his place, as a, his identity as, as God's son. And also the, the symbolism, the, the Old Testament comes into, mem- into mind again when you think about this dove. Because as Noah, in the time of the flood, sent the dove out from the ark to seek a safe haven and a, a rest, a, a you know, hope for humanity, in a similar fashion, God sends a dove from heaven across the flood of human rebellion and sin, to find a rock, which is Christ, upon which all people can find a safe haven and find rescue. And this is a beautiful picture here, a connection with the Old, Old Testament. And this confirms who Jesus is. And if this wasn't all miraculously miraculous enough, we have this um, here, the Father's words, which was so often heard in the Old Testament, is heard once again. The Father's voice booms, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here, the Father's words were for Jesus, for sure. This is my Son, confirms who He is. But also for all those who were listening there that day, that no, this is my Son. This is God's Son. And it's also for you and me today to increase our faith, that Jesus is God's Son, the Christ, the Messiah. And it echoes uh, Isaiah chapter 42. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. This is God's Son, the servant promised through the prophet Isaiah years ago, the one who would bring light of revelation to the Gentiles. And Jesus would need to rest secure here in his identity as God's Son because the Spirit was about to lead him out into the wilderness be tempted by Satan. If you remember how that goes, um, Satan tempted Jesus each time, starting with the phrase, if you are the son of God. In a similar way, Satan tempts us to question our identity as God's children, to make us doubt it, to make us define ourselves by some other means, some other way. And so... God affirms Jesus' identity here. And his identity is crucial for us to understand our identity. So we do not become God's children through something that we do. So you take notice of this story. Uh, Jesus is confirmed as God's son. And God is pleased with Jesus before Jesus defeats Satan, before Jesus starts his public ministry. Similarly, God is pleased with you and me, not because of we are particularly righteous or because we have done anything to earn it, but because of his divine will and favor, and because we have been assumed into the person of Christ through, through faith and through our baptism. And so God initiates all this. He calls us his children. The Father, by his grace, claims us as his own through the waters of baptism. This gives us a new identity, and out of our new identity flows our, our obedience to him. And this is not a, you know, a burdensome thing, a fear-based obedience, but out of love we have been loved, and out of love we love Him and love others. You cannot become a child of God by obeying the law, by, by being good and doing good. That's just not how it works. It doesn't go the other way around. And I can't tell you how many people that I have ministered to get this backwards. They think they need to earn God's favor and earn His love by being good, and they need to clean themselves up before they can come into his presence Um, but that's not how God works he claims people uh, by his grace and one thing uh, you know parents can cause some trouble for their kids if they make their relationship with them their their love and acceptance of them dependent upon the child's behavior good behavior and performance Uh, this is very detrimental to a child's development and also uh, detrimental um, to their view of God whom parents are to represent. Oh, I need to perform to earn approval, to earn favor. Oh, that's not how God works and not how a good parent works, right? So we do good works because we are the children of God, not to become the children of God. See, Christianity is not about what you do for God, but what God has done for you. That's what it's all about. It isn't about who other people say you are or who you say you are but it's who god says you are that's what's important god gets the final say we are who he says we are we are his beloved children by his grace baptism is is truly a miraculous thing it's mysterious it's powerful it's life changing it changes our souls And there was a a group of Christians around the time of Martin Luther who started to question the power and efficacy of baptism. And Luther says this in his large catechism, It is of the greatest importance that we regard baptism as excellent, glorious, and exalted. It is the chief cause of our contentions and battles because the world is now full of sects who scream that baptism is an external thing and that external things are of no use. See, these groups of Christians, um, known as the Anabaptists, uh, thought that baptism was just a sign, just an outward sign, and it didn't really change anything in here. Uh, but what was more important is, is, is your commitment to God and, and how you feel about your relationship with him. And uh, Luther had issue with this, right? They said, well, it's just, it's just water, uh, and it doesn't change you. And Luther's like, no, 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 it's not, it's not just water. It is water included in God's command and combined with God's word that does this miraculous thing of bringing dead people to life. From not being a child of God to become a child of God. And what is that word of God? Our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, God's word is the powerful part here. God's word combined with this simple element of water transforms lives. Transfers people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. God's word is so powerful. By his word he created the universe. He spoke and it was so. God's word moves mountains. It destroys armies. It brings people to repentance and to faith in the son of God. God's word combined with this element of water does a miraculous thing. Gives us life and salvation. Luther also uh, said in a a sermon in 1518, uh, a pastor could say when he baptizes people, he could say this: Behold, you are sinful flesh. Therefore I drown you in God's name, and in his name condemn you to death, so that with you all your sins may die and be destroyed. You just gotta love the way he writes, right? Because that's what's going on at baptism. Your old sinful self is drowned. St. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that those of you who have been baptized have been baptized into Christ's death? You have been mysteriously connected to the death of Christ in your baptism. And that would be a sad story if it ended there, but no. Just as Christ rose from the dead, we too rise to new life through our baptism. We get new life in Christ through the waters of baptism. The old is gone, the new has come. We are made new in Christ. So back to uh, the seminary classroom. Uh, Dr. Burson went on during that class period to tell us about the importance of baptism. He says, when you're preaching a funeral, um, it's it's wise to talk about baptism. And if you remember at a funeral over the casket, we we put a white cloth. And this is to, to symbolize that this person has been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. It is not anything they did in their life that's going to get them to heaven. No, it's what God did for them in Christ. This person has been made new through their baptism. And that's the paradoxical thing. Like, we live our lives baptized, redeemed. You know, resurrection life is ours here and now. And yet we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with the, with the sins of the flesh. Our flesh fails us. Our minds fail us. Our zeal for the Lord comes and goes It waxes. And it wanes, but one thing remains and that's the word of God. God's word remains forever. And God's word was spoken over you in your baptism where God claimed you as his child. Nobody can take you away from me. So, how do you know if you're saved? Well, there's really one way to really mess this up. And that's to deny Christ as your Lord and Savior. As St. Mark says in in, uh, his 16th chapter of his gospel, those who are baptized and believe will be saved. Those who do not believe will be condemned. So how do I know if I'm saved? You know, I, I hear this, people talk, I got saved on such and such a date, at such and such a time, in such and such a place. And I usually respond with, yeah, me too. I got saved 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on a cross, on the cross for me. And then on September 25th of 1988 when I was baptized uh, by the grace of God and through the will of my parents as, a, as an infant, then, every day when I wake up and I make the sign of the cross and I remember my baptism and repent and believe the good news that Christ is Lord and Savior. And sometimes we have doubts, right? The doubts come. And that's why it's so important to be here amongst God's people. Because when you have doubts, you have somebody around you say, No, you are a baptized child of God. You are saved for eternity. That's good news. That's something to get excited about. Amen.